It's November 1st, 1800, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. The house is made habitable, but there is not a single apartment finished. We have not the least fence, yard, or other convenience without, and the great unfinished audience room I made a drying room of to hang up the clothes in. The principal stairs are not up and will not be this winter. Not the words of a disappointed Airbnb guest, but those of First Lady Abigail Adams, writing to her daughter shortly after John Adams became the first president to move into the White House, today in history in 1800. Yeah, because although workmen had been rushing to finish their plastering and painting and so on before Adams returned to D.C. from a visit to Quincy in late October, the construction really was very much unfinished when his carriage rolled up the drive. They had managed to bring uh, some of the furniture and a portrait of George Washington that had been in the Adams uh, family home and they'd hung them in one room going, look at this one, this is the one that you should look at. The building work was rapid, despite the fact that he may have felt that it had been dragging on a bit. I mean, that's how everyone feels when they've got the builders in, doesn't it? But it was impressive (laughs) because they weren't just building, after all, the White House, although it wasn't known as the White House for another 100 years. It was known as the President's House. They were also building, of course all of Washington, D.C. So, I mean, in this period, it's extraordinary. I mean, just a little over two weeks later, the Senate met for the first time in the new Congress House, which is what we now know as the U.S. Capitol building. And I think there was an element of legacy as well. One of Adams's faults was that he was famously quite vain and a little bit insecure. And he clearly wanted to be the first president in the White House because there was an election coming up literally a week later and he lost Mm. the election. So he ended up living there for months because there was was kind of like a complicated situation over who won. But he knew it wasn't him. So he obviously wanted to be the first one to get his foot in the door. This was the longest election in US history, right? him versus Jefferson. The winner wasn't announced for 10 months, but in those days, states could choose their own election day. So there was voting going on across the country from April through to October 1800. So actually on the day he moved in, it it pretty much already been decided that he was no longer going to be president. And in terms of where the president and vice president had been living before this time, first New York and then Philadelphia, because they both served as temporary capitals while the new capital city was decided upon. But the first executive mansions, you know, the first White Houses, were just normal houses. I mean, they were Mm. obviously very opulent houses, but they were on normal streets. So George Washington lived in basically just a nice normal house, and so did Vice President John Adams and his family. And there weren't huge allowances at this point for the president and the vice president as well, which meant that as VP, John Adams had furnished his rented homes with a lot of his own stuff. And as Mm. president, he inherited some of the furniture that Congress had purchased for George Washington. The issue was that the White House was obviously much, much bigger, although not many of the rooms are habitable. 24 rooms were unfinished at this point, which left only six rooms that were complete. And they had basically, they put all of their stuff in one room where they could host people, as you mentioned, Ari, and they just crowned it all in one room or like let's just have everyone in here because one of the issues was you were saying Ollie that the, you know the, the, the city itself was in the process of being built and having so many newcomers come to what had been you know, a pretty desolate swampy patch of land meant that there was a huge demand for all kinds of goods part of the issue with the White House was that it was damp and cold and that was because there wasn't enough wood and Abigail Adams said in this same letter to her daughter that they had coal but there was nowhere to buy a grate there was nowhere set up there weren't shops where you could walk in and buy a grate and there was no one around who could make one. It really was kind of pioneer living. 
Also, even though there were only a few rooms that were functional, that were working for their purpose, you can easily understand how, as Abigail wrote in a letter to a friend, that the building was only tolerable so long as fires are lit in every single room. So, you know, it's this enormous space and obviously, you know, each room is going to leach heat to the next. So it's not surprising that they found it a little bit disappointing when they, uh, when they moved in. And a pressure on their pocket as well. Because, as you were saying, you know, they weren't getting paid that much to be president. Um, Again, quoting from Abigail, and we're all quoting from Abigail Adams because she wrote a lot of letters. Um, The house is upon a grand and superb scale, requiring about 30 servants to attend and keep the apartments in proper order and perform the ordinary business of the house and stables. An establishment very well proportioned to the president's salary. And that was a really crucial thing because... If they just tipped the balance a little bit, like if it had needed 40 servants, they wouldn't have been able to afford it because all the state entertainments, all of the buffering and polishing and chandelier maintenance, all of that stuff had to come out of the president's salary, which was $25,000 a year, which doesn't go that far then when you're talking between 30 servants and a whole load of staff. Which, by the way, is still the rule to this day. Presidents are still responsible for paying for all meals at the White House and elsewhere, all events, and the wages of those who are working at the events, and even transport. And so many I. presidents, yeah, have actually left the White House in really, really serious debt, including Bill Clinton, whose debt totaled between 2 and $10 million, people don't quite know, uh, dollars by the time he left office. Yeah, that's the reason that presidents have a pension now. They did that. I think it was when Harry Truman left office, he had like nothing. And, you know, the, the feeling was it was embarrassing for a president to be living, you know, but not in poverty, but certainly not on a grand scale. So they decided a life pension. That's why they came up with the international speaking circuit. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. So that is basically forcing presidents to, I mean, the only thing they're going to be able to make money out of that point is advising private corporations, which is going to be right. seen as potentially dodgy. Or selling their memoirs, which is seen yeah. as... Opportunistic. Exactly. But what yeah. you, I didn't know that they actually came out with a huge debt. Well, yeah. the arrival of the Adamses at the White House is memorably depicted in the HBO miniseries John Adams. And there you see them arriving and it's muddy, desolate. It's a building site, basically. It seems like it's a really accurate depiction of the state that the house was in when they arrived. But they did not actually arrive together. It was on this day that John Adams arrived. Abigail wasn't as keen. She was at their farmhouse in Quincy, Massachusetts. The prospect was very dreary to her, but she did feel like it was her duty to her husband and to Washington society. Obviously, there wasn't very much of it, and she felt like she had to lead from the front. So John Adams wrote to her the day after arriving. They wrote so much. They they were really in love. It's really sweet. I know, sweet. I get their, that vibe. Their letters mm. are sweet, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> they, have, they wrote these really nice, playful letters to each other, but he wrote to her, and you can tell that, you know, he loves her and he wants her to come, and you can tell that he knows she's not going to be thrilled because he writes... The building is in a state to be habitable, so he's not lying. And then he adds, I shall not attempt a description of it. You will form the best idea of it from inspection. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen estate agents write similar things. Yeah. (laughs) Worth mentioning that the White House now isn't actually the building we're describing. Right. And that is the fault of the British. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yes, the War of 1812, but this happened in 1814, which is like... A very poorly named war. (laughs) Yeah, don't name a war after one year if it went on for multiple years. But the British troops in Washington set fire to it. It forced President James Madison, who was there, to flee the city. And it was really, really badly damaged. It had to be extensively rebuilt. It was actually closed for another three years. 
in the early years in particular, it was a surprisingly public building, even though it was always the president's private family home as well. So the Adamses had hosted a New Year's Day reception to which anyone who was respectably dressed and behaving themselves, presumably just people who weren't drunk, could come and shake the president's hand. And then Thomas Jefferson held the first inaugural open house in 1805, which seemed to have happened, it basically just happened naturally. He had his swearing-in ceremony and then people just followed him home. Everyone back to mine. Yeah, everyone back to mine. I mean, we talked before about Andrew Jackson's inauguration in 1829 and how that led to a knees-up that got a little bit out of control. But it wasn't until the 1890s under Grover Cleveland that the practice of public receptions was replaced with the inaugural parade that we still have today. Another thing that only came in in the 1890s, specifically 1891, was electricity. So until then, it was lit entirely by gaslights. And Benjamin Harrison, who was the president at the time, was sceptical of the whole business of electricity, frankly. And he was worried, very specifically, that he'd be shocked if he touched a light switch. And his solution to that problem was that he never touched one himself. (laughs) Fair enough. So on this day when the Adamses moved in, not only was the staircase missing, Abigail Adams never explains how they get from one floor to another. I assume there was some kind of back staircase. Um, But (laughs) another thing that didn't exist was the West Wing. The West Wing was built a century later by Theodore Roosevelt, and there was a specific reason for it, which was that for the first hundred years, the main building, the executive mansion, as it was known, was the private home of the president, but it was also office space for, you know, the president's employees, the president himself. But when Theodore Roosevelt moved in, he had six children and they were all, I think the oldest Alice was 17 and they went down to about 12. They were incredibly rambunctious. We can't go into it now, but look it up. They had loads of fun adventures in the White House. But basically his family was so big and loud and busy that he needed the whole executive mansion as family quarters. So he (laughs) built the West Wing just so that some work could get done. Well, there's 132 rooms there in total now, and it does feel like some of the rooms have been built with children in mind because you've got all of these kind of fun rooms. FDR oversaw the transformation of a boring old cloakroom into a 42-seat movie theatre must have been quite an extensive cloakroom, come to Mm. think of it. And Hillary Clinton uh, converted a sitting room into a music room so that Bill Clinton could play the saxophone in it. It just just raises so many questions (laughs) about what he got up to in there. Who put in Um, the sex swing? (laughs) Tomorrow. This is for posh people to read and it's got swear words in it and it's got anal sex in it. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, part of the ACAST Creator Network.